0: Hello and welcome to the World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Ellie Karamaya and I'm standing in for Mark Leonard, our director, because we have a very special episode for you today from our Iran Strategy Meeting Group in Brussels. Now, a lot has happened this month already on Iran with a new announcement from President Rouhani that they are taking a further step to withdraw their commitments under the 2015 nuclear agreement. We've already had responses from European governments, including uh, President Macron of France that has called this a profound shift and has seen this as a potential end to the nuclear deal. Also this month, we are looking at two anniversaries, First of all, we are now a year on from the reimposition of US sanctions under the Trump administration, and we're going to assess how that has actually impacted Iran domestically. We are also this year marking the 40th anniversary of the hostage crisis, which has shaped Iran-US relations for the last four decades. So to make sense of what's going on, I'm very happy to be joined by three prominent guests who can speak on these issues. We have Hossein Mousavian, who is based in Princeton University at the moment and is a former Iranian diplomat. We have also Elon Goldenberg, Director of the Middle East Security Program for the Center for New American Security, and a former Special Advisor on the Middle East to the Office of the U.S. Defense Secretary. And we also have Dr. Nasser Hadiyan, a Professor of Political Science in the University of Tehran, who joins us in Europe. So let me start off with some questions to, uh, to you all. Hossein, I think back in May, when we last had a podcast with you, I had talked about the fact that Iran is now going from strategic patience to strategic action through this partial withdrawal of the nuclear agreement, the so-called JCPOA. How do you interpret President Rouhani's announcement earlier this month regarding the fourth step of withdrawal from the nuclear deal?
1: From the Iranian point of view, the JCPOA is a multilateral agreement. With the UN resolution, Iran fully complied for over two years. And none of the P5-plus-1 members were able to deliver their full commitments. At the end, the U.S. withdrew and imposed not only nuclear-related sanctions, but beyond. Iran even continued to implement the deal a year after Trump's withdrawal or breaking the deal. And at the end, Iran said the JCPOA is a multilateral agreement, is not going to be unilaterally implemented only by Iran, either the P five plus one, if not the P four plus one they would implement, even if the P four plus one would be able to implement, Iran would continue to be fully committed to the deal, minus the US, but they were waiting for a year or strategy, but they are in a situation that more flexibility, more uh, transparency, more compliance with the deal, they have received more sanctions, pressures... And they want to change the course.
0: Let me ask you, Nasser, do you agree with President Macron that this is a profound shift in Iran's position, this latest announcement? Because there's been an emphasis that the previous steps were technically um, more easy to reverse than this current step that Iran has taken in Ford. Would you agree with that assessment?
2: No, uh, I think it is basically, it is not a very big deal and the Europeans should not make a big deal out of it. Personally, I expected things uh, or steps to be more intense. I thought we are going to increase the level of enrichment to 20%, which did not happen because if we would have gone to the 20% enrichment, the breakout time would have been shrinked relatively quickly and that would have created in a strategic space For the diplomacy to work, unless we create such an environment, diplomacy simply cannot work. It is not just a matter of talk or rhetoric or persuasion. There should be structural factor presence, like shrinking of the breakout time. And just to to explain to
0: our listeners, breakout time is correlating to the amount of time it would take Iran to build enough fuel for a nuclear bomb.
2: Technically, it means from the time we decide to make a bomb, to the actuality of Mm -hmm. making it a bomb. So that's what they call... Breakout uh, time. So, in fact, the measures which we adopted is not a measure one, and Europeans should view it that way. And I hope it's enough to create, although I doubt, but I hope it would create the more necessary environment for the Europeans to go to the Trump, or for the Democrats, basically, in the United States, to go Trump, Mm -hmm. that... That's exactly what you did. By your withdrawal, you have put us in such a condition that either we have to go to a war to stop Iran or basically Iran is going to make a bomb. So we are better off to go back to the JCPOA. Or at least, if the U.S. doesn't want to go back to JCPOA, let the Europeans come with some measures, which is also adaptable for the Americans, that is also acceptable with the Iranians too. So that's why Europeans should look at it mostly as an opportunity rather than a threat. It is an opportunity for Europeans to go to the diplomacy. And that's the way Democrats and Europeans should look at this fourth step.
0: So essentially, Iran is taking what I would think is a gamble that through this escalation, there can be a political opening, particularly with pressure on President Trump. So, Ilan, let me come to you. How is this all playing out in the U.S. politics at the moment, particularly the interpretation of Iran's latest moves? And if after the U.N. General Assembly, when President Macron was really trying to press President Trump and President Rouhani to meet, if actually this step from Iran uh, makes that more likely for a political breakthrough, or if it actually makes it more difficult for Trump?
3: Yeah, I think in terms of how this is being viewed in the U.S., it's seen as significant. And it is seen as different in that it's uh, more provocative. You know, the Fordo facility is one that's always concerned the United States uh, and Europeans, partially because the size of the facility such and the location of the facility such is it's very hard to explain it away as part of a civilian nuclear program. There really is only There aren't many reasons to have 3,000 centrifuges in the middle of a mountain. And so that, that raises alarm bells. Actually, what raised more alarm bells, I think, with technical experts was an announcement that got a lot less attention about more research on next-gen centrifuges, which actually is much more important in my view in terms of breakout terms and and Iran's long-term capabilities. And that was also announced in in recent days. So that makes me more concerned. Look, I don't think it makes that much of a difference for Trump one way Mm -hmm. or the other. I think Trump is open to engaging with Iran and would love to have meeting with President Rouhani. As far as I understand it, the difference between the two sides is only Trump will cut the deal that actually gives Iran sanctions relief. And he will insist on doing it in person. And Iran will not sit in a room with him, like Iran's leadership, you know, President Rouhani, uh, Foreign Minister Zarif, will not sit in a room with him because they don't trust him without getting guarantees about that sanctions relief first. And I understand that that's the real deadlock. I, I don't think this changes Trump's calculus in any way. I do think it changes the calculus of the people around him. And I do think what you will see now from the Trump administration, is a pretty serious effort, again, to try to get the Europeans to move from being stuck in the middle and mediating to applying more pressure on Iran to saying this has gone too far. Thus far, um, Iran's previous steps did not trigger a European move towards the United States. But I know the American administration will try again as it tried previously. And this time it might have more success precisely because I think these steps are more concerning for everybody.
0: I was saying, let me ask you, with your previous experience with these nuclear talks, what role do you think or dangers might be you know, on the horizon, particularly with concerns about politicization of the International Atomic Energy Agency, which is going to be overseeing a lot of the disagreements over Iran's nuclear program? It now has a new head has taken over from the late Amano. Other concerns in Iran about the neutral position of the IAEA going forward in in making this calculation about technicalities in Iran, in Iran's nuclear program? I, I
1: believe the IAEA has been politicized for at least two decades from the beginning of the Iranian nuclear crisis. Iran is the most inspected country among every IAEA member. And you, you can see tens of reports during last 13, 14, 15 years, all IAEA reports confirms there is no diversion toward weaponization. But still Iranian nuclear issue is priority top number one of the IAEA, a country which is member of the NPT, which has accepted the JCPOA, which is practically NPT two because this is the most comprehensive agreement, consists of too many elements beyond NPT, from transparency measures to limits. Iran is the only NPT member which is committed to such a limits. No other NPT member has ever accepted, or even is today ready to accept it. Iran is the most inspected country, but the most accused country. It is, it is a political decision. That's why you say nobody is talking about Israeli nuclear bomb in the Middle East. Israel is not member of NPT. Does have nuclear bomb, but Iran is a threat which is member of NPT and is the most infected and is committed to the highest level of transparency ever any member of NPT during the history of non proliferation has accepted. This is, this
0: is a political decision. Question on technicalities, Suzanne. If the Europeans indeed begin to shift more towards the US current administration's position of pressure on Iran, presumably they would begin by triggering the dispute resolution mechanism under the nuclear agreement. How would that be perceived in Tehran if if we start heading down this road?
1: I personally disagree with President Rouhani's government approach toward the current nuclear status quo. Mm. President Trump has questioned the rights of Iran for uh, under NPT. They have recently questioned the rights of Iran for enrichment, right? Yes. One. Second, President Trump said repeatedly the nuclear deal is the worst disastrous deal, right?
0: Mm -hmm.
1: Therefore, they withdrew from the JCPOA and they have questioned the rights of Iran under NPT. And they are asking for a new nuclear deal. If I were President Rouhani, I would suspend Iranian commitment under NPT because the U.S. practically has questioned. I would suspend or withdraw from NPT like the U.S. And then I would invite the P5 plus one to discuss a new nuclear deal. Mm. Because if Iran is member of NPT, if Iran has accepted JCPOA, which is NPT2, the highest level of transparency and the most comprehensive limits, and this is not enough, and the US does not respect NPT, neither NPT nor JCPOA.
3: Iran should suspend both. Iran should not implement it.
0: So I have a burning question here or comment from Ilan. Go for it.
3: Well, it's burning, but just to say, I mean, I'm not sure that walking away from the NPT would be a good, good idea for Iran. I mean, part of the reason Iran has been under no, walking security. away
1: in order to make a new deal, you know. If NPT is not the base,
3: if JCPOA is not the base, then forget these 2 let's negotiate about a new base. But I do think that part of the reason, I mean, Hussein, it is important to remember that part of the reason Iran has been so inspected, put the Trump administration aside for a second, part of the reason even under the Obama administration and previous administrations there was so much control is because Iran had violations of the NPT. I mean, that is why the United States and the P5 plus 1 you know, insisted on greater restrictions on Iran's nuclear program because of previous violations and things that were done outside of the NPT. You know, so anyway, we don't have to have a long debate on the history. My own perspective is walking away from the JCPOA at this point, I want to encourage Iran to do that. I prefer for Iran to be for Iran's government to, to be careful in how it does that, because I think there's no need for a broader regional escalation and nuclear escalation. But I do think if Iran were to walk away from the NPT, it would find itself internationally isolated. I think it would find Europe on the American side. It would be the end of that sort of break you have right now. It would be seen as incredibly sort of inflammatory and provocative. I don't know if Iran really gets all that much leverage out of it that it doesn't already what have. What is the leverage today Iran has? The same leverage it has in terms of the leverage Iran is building is in pushing forward on its nuclear program, whether it's in the NPT or not. Iran
1: mm-hmm. implementing JCPOA and NPT fully. For mm-hmm. years, i have been mean, JCPOA.
3: What was the response of the US and the Europeans for
1: Iran? What was the Iranian leverage? And- in
2: other words, what's why we have to stay within the JCPOA if okay. you are not going to get the benefit? So that's that's a question in Tehran. Right.
3: And that's, I want to distinguish between the JCPOA. I understand that question. Yeah. I'm just yeah. saying there's a clear distinction between the JCPOA no. and the NPT. No, yeah, there's N- no. My
2: point is we are not going to withdraw from the NPT unless, and I disagree with you saying on this point, unless European initiate the snapback process. That's almost certainly...
0: That's the snapback of UN and EU sanctions. Exactly. Unless
1: they defer the Iranian nuclear yeah. foil again to UN security. To UN security. Council.
2: That's almost automatically, I can tell you, Iran is going to withdraw from the JCPOA. And also, I'm sure, seriously we will think to withdraw from the NPT as well. Even the most liberal people are going to support that that position. So that's why Europeans are better off to look to the fourth step as an opportunity, mm-hmm. and the same thing with the Democrats, an opportunity for the di- for the diplomacy to work, because that would create an environment that like exactly what just early, earlier this week this week, Bernie Sanders said that we have to go back. This is what the U.S. withdrawal has created. We have to go back to the JCPOA. So that's the position which the Europeans should take. It is not just going to do with President.
0: Nasser, let me ask you one question because Iran's supreme leader, in recent statements, was it seemed to very much undermine President Macron's efforts on negotiating a pathway out. How does the Iranian leadership view Europe? I mean, do they really believe that Europe is able to persuade President Trump on this issue? What are they hoping for on the political level? Because clearly, on the economic level, it seems that they are either. Unable because of technicalities or unwilling because of political appetite to push an economic breakthrough themselves without U.S. permission or green light. So on on the political scale, realistically, given the aftermath of the UN General Assembly and President Macron's initiative, what can be hoped for from now until you know the run up to the November twenty twenty elections? In fact,
2: like I, think the, I can say, that there is a, almost a consensus in Tehran that Europeans are not capable of delivering the promises, the commitments under the JCPOA independent of the United States without the permission or green light from the President Trump. They are mostly, we believe, they are not able to, rather than they don't want to, they're not willing to. The steps we are taking, in fact, is to empower the Europe because they cannot by themselves create the space, the environment which is conducive to persuading President Trump for action, for at least giving them the green light. We expected that the Europeans to create the space themselves, but we thought they can't. Because they can't, thus we have to adopt other measures, including the fourth steps, Mm -hmm. and also what happened regionally. So these are going to create the necessary space for the Europe. To get involved, to get a green light. Without these steps, Europe cannot move independent of the United States. So we hope that now, with the fourth steps, Europe look at the situation, look at these steps as an opportunity for the diplomacy to work. Now they can go to President Trump and ask him, okay, what do you want to do? Either you are, you are going to wait for the fifth step or sixth step or whatever at the end, withdrawal from the JCPOA and NPT, or you are, going to, you are going to let us do something. If you if you don't want it to do,
0: and Elon, what do you think Trump will do? Given that he seems to, this administration has sanctioned quite extensively yeah. Iran's economy, where else can they go if they're not willing to have a political way out of this?
3: Yeah, I mean they can sanction everything for a third time. I mean they sanction everything, and they can just use different sanctions to come in on top of the sanctions that have already mm-hmm. had the same impact. I think at this point we're sort of we're, not, we're beyond maximum pressure. We're like maximum sanctions. There's just like yeah. almost nothing left to sanction, but. I think the bigger question is one question and then maybe also just one suggestion from, from my Iranian colleagues. The open question is, does any of this, what Nasser described, I think that works with a normal American president, right? It makes them rethink. It might make some of the people around him, well, either rethink and more about negotiations and the urgency of negotiations, or it might cause them to take a harder line see, once again, Iran is proving, this is not me making this point, but what they will say, once again, Iran is proving we cannot negotiate with them. We cannot trust them. They cannot have any uh, enrichment. But I think for the president, it doesn't matter either way, frankly. I mean, I just don't think it does. I think it's very clear what he wants. He wants a big public meeting and the show of progress and... Then negotiations that most likely will go nowhere because he's not capable of negotiating something this serious or meaningful. His administration isn't. Even if his people make progress, he will undermine it somehow. We've seen this again and again. He wants a big public show, and in exchange, he's willing to give some sanctions. Are
2: you sure about that? Yes. But why he was not ready then? To give President Macron the necessary tools. Because for that. he didn't want
3: President Macron to
1: get the credit. He wants yeah. to get the credit himself.
2: No, it doesn't matter, but the state, the issue was not the <clears throat> four-point principles. It was a trust. Rouhani was ready for the meeting, provided he was sure were
0: there were guarantees. There were guarantees
2: that it's gonna happen. He was not President Rouhani was not convinced that if he meets with President Trump. He's going to remove
3: sanctions. Well, this is why I think there is still space here because yeah. that that's classic diplomatic yeah. sort of 101 sequencing. sequencing. Yeah. You know, it's like very hard, especially when there is a lack of trust. And there's obviously a lack of trust, especially yeah. with President Trump's decision to walk away from the JCPOA. So I think with more work, it's possible you get there on something like that. You can have a phone call. You can have some meeting. It was easier to do at UNGA because you had physically everyone close to each other. And so you can conduct that kind of diplomacy. It's hard to just orchestrate something like that, but it's still possible, especially if it's a phone call. But I'm not sure one way or the other, Iran's decision really impacts President Trump. You know, okay, now they're starting to enrich this I'm not sure that changes his mind at all or perspective on any of this.
0: Um, a little bit like North Korea, no matter how many tests there are of their ballistic yeah, <laughs> missiles. Just doesn't do
2: yeah, doesn't care. But I disagree with, uh, with Elon that I think, or at least there are people who can influence him that, okay, these are important. If mm-hmm. the breaking out time is shrinking rapidly, I'm sure he would take it seriously. And you see what happened about the bringing down the drone? So he just cannot dismiss it quickly. Or what happened in Aramco? In other words, as he said, you know, he he ordered a response only 10 minutes before he withdrew the decision. It means that, you know, he just cannot dismiss and ignore these decisions.
0: Nasser, let me move on from what you've said onto the regional landscape for the last few minutes of our discussion. One of the perhaps silver lining that seems to be emerging from this erratic administration in the US (laughs) on its Iran policy is we're seeing the regional players, dominantly the UAE, and Saudi Arabia, rethink slightly their policies and their posture towards Iran. Now, Ilan, as someone who's been watching the region for some time, how are you seeing these shifts, particularly because we didn't see a big show of force from the United States in response to the attack in Aramco?
3: Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty interesting that you see the Emiratis reaching out and having a deeper conversation with Iran, which, by the way, they were doing even before these attacks Mm. started. They were already starting to pull back from Yemen, even going back to April and May. And now you even see the Saudis reaching out, at least according to news reports, to the Pakistanis, through the Iraqis. This is, uh, I think, good news. There's been this assumption in the Gulf that the Americans will support us no matter what. We don't have to deal with the Iranians. We're just going to take the hardest line possible. And if they start to rethink that, I think there's an opportunity there for some diplomacy. I also worry a little bit about this because what I worry about beyond the American Sort of position with the erratic administration is if I'm sitting in Riyadh right now and you know my oil facilities have been struck and the Americans haven't responded in the way I would expect I'm nervous and I might reach out to Iran and look for a way to calm things down. In the back of my mind I'm also thinking wow if the Americans aren't going to really keep me safe I'm going to need to both reach out and do diplomacy but I'm also going to need to start hedging and figuring out how I build my own deterrent. So in the long term I worry this could also create the possibilities of. The Saudis starting to think more seriously about their own nuclear program, so it kind of works both ways. Those would be the two things I would, mm. I would look for.
0: And Hussein, in New York, President Rouhani announced <clears throat> this uh, proposal for a coalition of hope to the regional players. And recently, as I understand, that there's been uh, you know formal uh, proposals sent out to the members of the of the GCC regarding follow-up steps on this, how would you describe Iran's attempt with the Coalition of Hope? Is it sincere? Can it really get anywhere, given the dynamics between Iran and Saudi Arabia? Or is it meant to just trigger a change in dynamic to provide some sort of a space for diplomacy between the two sides?
1: I think this has been Iranian strategy since the end of Iran-Iraq war, which is not really something new. I remember very well in 1991 when late Gensher was Foreign Minister of Germany. We were in a meeting three hours with President Afsanjani and he proposed the same idea. Iran, GCC, Iraq, a regional cooperation, Afsanjani gave him hand. He was really shocked Mm -hmm. how Iran is so flexible to to go for such a regional cooperation. He left Tehran to Washington and Washington said no. But at that time, Iran sent Velayati, the, the then foreign minister, to every head of GCC to inform them that we are ready for establishing a regional cooperation system, addressing every security concerns of the neighbors, like OSCE, like EU cooperation, and so and so. And Iran continues the same strategy. I don't believe there is any changes on the Iranian side, but... Whether GCC would change its strategy because they have been relying on security, strategic ties with the U.S. to confront Iran in the region. As long as they continue this strategy, there would be no success neither for Iranian initiative nor for any other initiative for peace in the region.
0: So this idea about some sort of a detente between Iran and Saudi Arabia is on the positive end of the scale of what we may see in the region in the coming year. But Nasser, let me ask you about how you view what's going on in two countries in the region that are very important to Iran's so-called strategic depth and forward defense policy, which is Lebanon and Iraq. Both countries are, you know, over the last month going through some serious domestic turmoil that are questioning, including amongst other things, Iran's engagement with those countries. Is Iran nervous about what's going on in Iraq and Lebanon? Or is it something that they see as a natural response to the years of conflict in both countries and it's a wave that will also pass? Uh,
2: We are very much, I don't want to say nervous, but we are very much concerned Mm -hmm. about uh, what is happening in both Lebanon and in Iraq. Of course, what is happening in Iraq has far more significance for us than, than Lebanon. But the general understanding is there are legitimate demands from the citizens, a good portion of the citizens of both countries. But also, there is a belief, strong belief, that, okay, Saudis, Israelis, and to some extent, Americans are also involved in uh, pushing for such a kind of a protest. But at the end of the day, they believe, particularly in Lebanon, there are enough institutions to contain this protest movement. And they think, basically, things are going to be stabilized relatively quickly in Lebanon. But in Iraq, they have the same hope, but they think it demands far more resources to contain the protest and to stabilize the situation. But they are hopeful that they will be able to do it. Because at the end of the day they think that the courts and the Shias, majority Shias are going to to a large extent they are going to agree with a solution in Iraq. And also many of the tribes of the Sunnis have the same view as well. They know what may happen. They know there is a good chance of civil war there and few Iraqis would love to go for a, a civil war mm. and what happened a few years back. So that's why they believe or they count on that relatively, not if within weeks, but in a few months in Iraq, the situation is going to be stabilized.
3: Just one thing in reaction on that, I do believe, at least personally, what's happening in both Lebanon and Iraq, more than anything, is about Lebanon and Iraq and that's how we should talk about it yeah it's not being driven mm-hmm. by there's people in the US who see it as this huge opportunity to go after Iran it's not about Iran but it should
0: be a concern for Washington as well yeah, right what's happening to, to oh parties no no parties. it should
3: it should but it shouldn't be put in the frame of yeah. either like oh it's the Israelis and the Saudis driving anything or it's the Americans or it's the Iranians I think we've learned two lessons one I think the people have learned you know you see a lot of protests right now but they're being very careful to keep it peaceful because People don't want their countries to go down the pathway of Syria or mm-hmm. Yemen. But the other, I think, for for the external players to learn is when we all start dumping money and weapons and support and influence into these countries and scenarios like this, it ends up worse for everybody than where we started, and especially for the people, but also for overall regional stability. That's how we should talk about it. And remember, this is, in my mind, mostly about corruption. It's about governance. It's about opportunities for young people. Like, and we should think and talk about it that way. Certainly, I agree with you on that point. As I said, that's
2: that's what I call legitimate concern, legitimate demands. But also, we cannot dismiss Mm -hmm. that, okay, that's an opportunity, or at least the perception in Riyadh and in Tel Aviv is that's an opportunity.
0: So so the situation in the region is going to be very closely watched, I think, by Iran, the United States, and also the Europeans who are very keen not to have another wave of instability in the region. And certainly, I'm sure in in the weeks and months ahead, we're going to have probably a lot of surprises (laughs) across the board. So we look forward to discussing that further with you. Let me move on to the final section of our podcast, which is our bookshelf section or, or films or articles that you've read. I'll start off with my suggested article for this month, which is a piece in foreign policy Authored by Roham al Bandi and a co author called The United States Overthrew Iran's Last Democratic leader. And this is basically digging into the 1953 overthrow of Mossadegh in Iran and how actually there is this sense that history is being rewritten by the Trump administration about the events um, that took place and why that is still such a critical uh, component in the psyche of the Iranian leadership in their approach to the United States. Hossein, can I maybe ask you for your suggestion of books or articles that you've recently read?
1: I think the best article I read just recently yesterday was the article, or more than article perhaps, about, written by the Crisis Group about the Iranian and American position on the nuclear issue, the maximum pressures mm-hmm. and the consequences and the regional situation, just published by International Crisis Group.
0: Great.
3: I'm going to go a little bit outside the Iran space. Please do. uh, I've started watching a show on HBO called Our Boys, which is about uh, the Israeli occupation of the Palestinian territories and specifically about an Arab Israeli family living in Israel in 2014 when the Gaza war started and the murder of, well, the murder of three Israeli youth and then also of a Palestinian youth that sort of triggered that war. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a very interesting drama you know, with some fictional stuff thrown in, but, uh, you know, fascinating uh, stories.
0: Thank you. And last but not least, Nasser.
3: I think if uh, you want to know or
2: understand, have a better understanding of the domestic politics of Iran, I recommend that, you know, to look at foreign Foreign Minister Zarif's talk in our majlis or parliament and how the situation evolved. He had to leave basically the majlis for a few minutes And that would show the interested people how the domestic politics is operating and why he had to leave the majlis quickly and so on.
0: It might be difficult to find that YouTube video, but uh, we'll try nevertheless. And let me thank you to our listeners for tuning in. Please, if you have enjoyed this podcast, share it and rate us on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I want to also thank our researcher for this podcast, Edin Dedovich and our editors in the Berlin team. And from Brussels, it's goodbye from me, Ali Maya, Ilan Goldenberg, Hossein Mousavian and Nasser Hadian.